If you would, please take your Bibles and open to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. I want to read the first two Psalms in the book of Psalms today, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. So follow along if you would. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And in Psalm 2, Why do the nations conspire? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. More than ten years ago, we did a series on prayer. And one of the most influential authors in my studies was a man named Eugene Peterson. And it was from him that I learned of prayer as answering speech. That God initiates the conversation and we respond in prayer. In a more recent book, N.T. Wright has written on the Psalms. And he mentioned in passing that he reads through the Psalms once a month. And I have sought to follow his example. I've since learned that uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in Manhattan, has been doing this for more than 20 years. In fact, this is the pattern that the church has followed for centuries and only recently seems to have been lost. So, before I went to the Philippines, I came across a book by Eugene Peterson called Answering God, the Psalms as Tools for Prayer. So prayer and psalms together, and I, I, I purchased it and I have found it profoundly helpful, and I will make generous use of it in our study together. Ten years ago, if you may remember, one of the opening statements that I made in the series was that everyone prays. Not just Christians, everyone prays. We are creatures that pray. We are not animals living by sheer instinct in contact, immediate contact with our environment, We are not angels who live by sheer intelligence, who have unmediated access to God. We need the scriptures to hear what God has to say to us. We are creatures that pray. It has been argued that as human beings we are also creatures that need or require tools. And in that vein, one could make the case, and Mr. Peterson does, that prayers are tools. I think many people see prayer in precisely that way. But they are not tools for getting what we want or accomplishing what we think needs to be done. Rather, they are tools for being and becoming. 
we need to recognize that prayers are tools that God uses to work his will in our lives. They're not tools that we use to get from God what we want, but what God uses to accomplish what he wants in our lives. Prayers are the tools we use to collaborate with his work within us. If this is the case, if you agree with me that prayers are tools, then the book of Psalms is the essential toolbox. The Psalms are the best tools available for working the faith. As, one, as he put it, 150 carefully crafted prayers, actually it's 148, we'll see that in a few moments, that deal with the great variety of operations God carries on in us. They deal with the various aspects of our being, rebelling and trust, hurting and praising. There are at least two things that are notable about the book of Psalms that we should consider. First of all, they are marked by an extravagant claim. What is the claim? That they are necessary. They are absolutely necessary. They're not necessary for salvation. Let's be clear about that. It is by God's grace alone that we are saved. Um, And so our prayers, whether they are very well done, skillfully done, or clumsily done, heretical, and I think we've all done our share of those, or orthodox, verbatim from the Psalms, or ad-libbed in times of crisis. It doesn't matter. These don't gain us any grace or any favor from God. Right words and correct forms are not required in order to gain an audience with God. But the Psalms are necessary. By the way, in saying this, one does not stand alone. This has been the position of the church throughout, throughout the history of the church. Um, but why say necessary? Why use the word necessary? It is because they are prayer masters. In reading and praying the Psalms, we, requ- we acquire a facility in prayer. We, require, we acquire a facility in using these tools, and we become more and more the people that God wants us to be. If you choose to ignore the Psalms, it doesn't mean you can't pray. You're not excluded from praying. But I think what happens is one has to learn by trial and error that that what the psalmist has already learned, and we can learn from his example, um, if we choose to go our own way, then I think we go down a much harder and longer path. If we choose to dismiss the Psalms, as the modern church has done, preferring something more up-to-date, we will not be without grace, because it is grace, God is gracious to us, but we will miss the center where Jesus worked in his praying. He prayed the Psalms. Did you notice in our prayer of confession today? Into your hands I commit my spirit. He prayed the Psalms. And the church in the past has been convinced that he continues to pray them through us as we pray them. We are the bride of Christ, we are the body of Christ, and as he prayed the Psalms, as we pray them, he is praying them through us. Augustine put it this way, we recite this, the, this prayer of the psalm in him, and he recites it in us. So, the extravagant claim that the psalms are necessary. Uh, you will notice, by the way, that oftentimes when people publish just the New Testament, um, they'll put the New Testament and Psalms. Um, The Psalms are incredibly important. They are necessary. But the second thing about the Psalms is that 
they stand out with an awkward uniqueness. The uniqueness of the Psalms is that they do not fit into a form that people normally gravitate towards when they're praying. If you were to say to someone on the street, what would you say in prayer? I would say 99 times out of 100, it will not be what you find in the book of Psalms. We may agree that everyone prays. Um, What they pray about or what they pray for may be a matter for discussion. But we are unfinished creatures, and we know that. We have a sense that something is lacking. There is a longing, a reaching, a stretching toward fulfillment. And oftentimes prayer is seen as the mechanism to get us to that point. So you could argue that prayers are, they articulate our seeking after the best, our reaching for the highest. Everything that is human is expressed in prayer. And this includes not only our sorrows and our nobility, our creativity, if you wish, the good part of us, but one could also say the bad part of us, our lust and greed, our pride and pettiness, which, by the way, disguises itself in prayer, um, when in fact it's just the dark part of our being. In any case, I think, generally speaking, people see prayers as showing us at our best. Except for the Psalms. The Psalms are acts of obedience answering the God who has addressed us. His word precedes the Psalms. God has spoken, and now the psalmist replies. These prayers don't seek God. They respond to God who seeks us. We, Human beings, we always seem to get things just exactly backward. We think we're seeking after God, but it is actually God who seeks after us and we respond in prayer. As such, the Psalms are often filled with surprise for who expects God to come seeking after them. They are sometimes awkward in their, if you wish, spiritual striving. We're looking for another kind of God, not the God of Scripture who's come looking for us. God comes and he speaks to us. He catches us in our sin. He finds us in our despair. And he invades us by his grace. And the psalmist answers in the psalms. We don't always like what God has to say to us. We don't always understand it. Left to ourselves, we would rather pray to a God who speaks what we like to hear. Um, It's critical for us to understand that it is God who speaks to us. And we answer in prayer to everything that he says to us. In our speaking, which includes listening, by the way, we mature in the great art of conversation. Conversation with God. And that is prayer. The Psalms train us in this art, in this grace, if you wish, of praying, of conversation. There is a big difference between praying to an unknown God whom we hope to discover in our praying and praying to a known God who through Israel and in Christ has revealed himself in our language. He speaks our language. In the first, praying to an unknown God, we indulge our appetite for religious fulfillment. I want to be a better Christian. And our prayers drive us in that direction. In the second, in praying to the true God, we practice obedience. The first one's a lot more fun. 
The second one is a lot more important. What is essential in prayer is not that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. That we listen to what he has to say, and then we answer him. And the Psalms show us how to answer God. The modern church, for whatever reason, has chosen to ignore the Psalms, uh, particularly in public worship. And by the way, if it doesn't happen in public worship, oftentimes that translates into our private worship, our daily devotional, if you wish, and the Psalms have been conveniently set aside, which is really amazing because if you look over church history, no matter what aspect of the church, church's tradition, the Christian tradition, whether it be Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, uh, Reformed, uh, you have the Lutherans, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, all of them, have had a guide for reading through the Psalms daily, praying through the Psalms daily. This is how most Christians, for since Jesus ascended into heaven, this is how Christians have learned to pray. This is how they have grown in the faith. Nothing fancy, it's just the Psalms. And yet, somehow in the 20th century, at least, now in the 21st century, They seem to have been set aside. I hope, by God's grace, for us to recover this sense of the Psalms, the importance, the necessity, and the awkwardness of the Psalms to guide us in our prayer lives. So let's start at the beginning. It's a good place to start in the book of Psalms. But you should notice, and I don't know if you caught it as I was reading it, that this book of prayers actually does not begin with prayers. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are not prayers. Um, The text that teaches us to pray doesn't begin with prayer. One could argue we're not ready yet. We're not at the point yet. We're too wrapped up in ourselves. We're too knocked around by our circumstances and our surroundings. The world is a pushing, shoving, bullying, demanding place. There are voices inside us, voices outside of us that harass us, that insist. Look at this picture. Listen to this argument. Listen to this appeal. Read this headline. Feel this guilt. Touch this charm. And we are so distracted that we have, we're not in the place where we should be to pray. I think it is asking far too much for us to come from a stimulus-filled world to a quiet place of prayer. There needs to be transition. The world is an intimidating place. It's marked by bluster, by violence, by arrogance. What is prayer in the face of governments, armies, even billionaires? By the way, I don't know if you caught it, but at least twice in the last two months, there have been calamities, there have been difficulties, And people have said, our prayers are with so-and-so. And And political leaders have said, uh, they need more than prayers. Uh, Prayer is not uh, what they need. Well, in prayer, we leave a world of anxieties and enter a world of wonder and of mystery. We choose to leave an ego-centered world and enter a God-centered world. We leave a world of problems and we enter a world of mystery. And it's not easy. Because we are used to anxieties, we are used to egos, we are used to problems. We are not so comfortable with things like mystery and wonder 
and even God himself. Psalms 1 and 2 pave the way. They open the door and they point the way. They prepare us to pray. They are a pair. They need to go together. That's why we've read them together. And I would say we never get past needing Psalms 1 and 2. We always need this preparation. Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed. Blessed is the man. And the last sentence in Psalm 2 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So briefly, let's look at these two psalms today as we prepare to look at the matter of praying. Two things stand out in Psalm 1, an action and an image. The action. Well, immediately, because we're human, we think the action is us. Blessed is the man who does not walk. The man who meditates. But we've missed the boat. We've got it exactly backwards. As with prayer, it begins with God. We've seen this as we went through a series on worship, that worship is a response to God. It is, in fact, a divine activity. God has, in fact, as we sang in the hymn, been faithful to us, and we respond in worship to him. It is not about us, but it is about God. We are not the primary actors when it comes to worship, but God is. Worship is oftentimes seen as something that we get to express our praise and our devotion. We perform for an audience of one. The reality is God has worked in our lives and we respond in adoration and in worship. So when we pray, when we sing, when we give, and listening to scripture being read and preached in communion, we respond to God. In the Psalms, we are dealing with prayer which is, by definition, a response to God. It is our part of a conversation, a dialogue that God has begun. So, in Psalm 1, the action that we should be looking for is God's action. But where is it? Where is it? It's found in the word law. It comes from the word that means to throw something. Torah comes from the root word, uh, a javelin, to throw something to try to hit a mark. And God's word acts precisely in this way. It has this aimed, intentional, and personal quality that the word of God is not simply information. It's not a reference book. But it is something that is in fact alive and that God has aimed at us. Um, You may be familiar with this verse in Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul or to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is what God's Torah, God's law is. And the action that we find in Psalm 1 is of God acting, God speaking to us through his word. When he speaks, he does so piercingly, penetratingly, and we are not the same as a result. As we prepare to pray, to answer the words that God addresses to us, we learn that all of God's words have this characteristic. They are law. They are a javelin that he aims at us. We are the target. 
Again, it's not a reference book that you take down off the shelf from the library. It is God speaking to us. And the result is delight. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And now we come to the human action. It begins with God through his word. And the response is to meditate on his law. We take in God's words. We don't merely read them, but we work over them and through them. So that's the action we see here. What is the image? It is a tree that is transplanted by rivers of waters. That when we immerse ourselves in God's word, when we meditate on God's word, before we know it, we are praying. As we take in God's word, it isn't automatic. But I think by God's grace, we then begin to respond to him in prayer and in praise and thanksgiving. And before we know it, we are trees putting down roots, putting out leaves, producing fruit. The image of the tree is important. We've seen this in our studies before from the book of Genesis to Revelation. Uh, Trees are important. Uh, Peterson suggests in his book that we get ourselves ready to pray by looking at a tree and seeing ourselves in it. See, prayer begins with what we don't see, but with what we do see. I think we, because we're modern people, we're much more into the the realm of ideas. Um, And when we pray, we bow our heads and close our eyes, which I think is appropriate. But oftentimes I think perhaps it facilitates us escaping into this never-never land instead of dealing with the reality of where we are right here and now. Peterson tells us that beautiful ideas are an enemy to prayer and fine prayers are an enemy to prayer. The prayer begins when we stub our toe on a rock, when we get wet in the rain, when we get slapped in the face by an enemy, when we run into a tree. The image of the tree tells us that we are to put our roots down here. And as God speaks to us, as he throws his law, his javelin at us, or pierces us with his sword, the result should be that we meditate and we delight in who he is and what he has done. And by God's grace, we begin to grow up. We begin to mature. What about Psalm 2? If one could argue the key word in Psalm 1 is meditate, Uh, our response to God's law. What is the key word in Psalm 2? It's found in the first verse. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The King James, which is what I grew up with, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Well, the verb to plot or imagine, as it is in the King James, is the same word in Hebrew as meditate. Both of these words are the same word. Describes the same action. It's a considering, a pondering, a contemplating, thinking through the word of God. In Psalm 1, as God throws his javelin at someone, the result is meditation and delight. There's delight at knowing what God has done. In Psalm 2, the result is not the same. God's law comes And the response is, in fact, rebellion. Planning, scheming to come up with ways to get rid, to be free of God's working in their lives. 
See, they don't see, those who reject God's truth don't see it as something that is truthful, if you wish. Um, they see it as chains. If you look at verse number three, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. This is, they don't delight in what God says. They don't at all. They see it as chains that bind them, that they wish they could be their true selves, but God's law binds them. These people, by the way, seem to be quite numerous. In this first psalm, it almost seems to be a singularity. Blessed is the man. As though there aren't those many, that, there aren't that many people who do this. But in Psalm 2, we have all of these people. We have nations and peoples. They're prominent kings and rulers who not only reject the word of God, but in fact they turn the rejection into a world power. These people command most of the world's armies. They rule the modern nation states. They preside over governments. They rule the marketplace. They run the school systems. If these people are in conspiracy against God, what difference can my praying make? What difference can a tree, what chance does a mere tree meditating have against the powers of the earth that are aligned against it? Intimidation can be fatal when it comes to prayer. If we are intimidated, then we in fact will forfeit the entire world to those who set themselves against the Lord. This is God's world. We should always remember that. He is the king over all. We need a way to imagine this, to see this, because we so easily forget it, that this is the world that God rules. And we need more than mere words to simply say, well, God is sovereign. This is his world. God's will be done, and so on. We need a way. We need a convincing, accessible tool for realizing the largeness of God. That when we look at those who stand against God and they seem immense, how is it that we are to respond? Well, we need to understand or to imagine the largeness of God. And if we fail here, then our prayers will be stunted. We will pray as cowering fools, if you wish, rather than praying to the God who rules. As Peterson puts it, our prayers will whimper. So what are we to do? Well, Psalm 2 presents it to us here. It is the Messiah, his anointed one. Messiah comes from the word the anointed one. Messiah is God's person in history. He is God's invasion into human history. Messiah enters in person. Look, if you would, at verse 6 through 9. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them like pieces, or to pieces like pottery. See, ultimately, Psalm, it points to the Lord Jesus. It points to the Lord Jesus. And as we pray in the face of what might seem to be overwhelming odds. And by the way, I think on some level, we need to be humbled by the fact that um, we have it pretty good. And brothers and sisters of ours throughout church history, and even at this point in human history, 
they live under great oppression. And yet I would argue oftentimes their prayers are more true to scripture than ours um, because we feel intimidated because things don't quite go our way on a particular day. It is the Lord Jesus who has entered into history. There are two tools here, two things, two details that I think will help us expand our messianic imagination. The first is found in verse number four. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Laughter, I think, restores perspective. So we don't take the world too seriously. Um, It is my habit. I I listen to the ESV online. uh, And I always remember Psalm 2 because the man who is reading at this point, he says, um, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. And he just pauses and says, yes. It is laughter, I think, that really puts things in its proper perspective. By the way, in Psalm 30, or Proverbs 31, uh, one uh, chapter that uh, many try to avoid, the wife of noble character, but I find this interesting. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She doesn't worry. She doesn't fret about what's coming. She laughs at the days to come. Yeah. I think we need a good case of laughter to understand that these things are not as serious as we take them to be. They are not all powerful, though they may seem to be. The second detail is the call to adoration. Verses 11 and 12. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you will you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. The psalmist is looking ahead. We look back. But for the psalmist, Messiah will be coming into the world. There is much yet to learn about how he will work. There will be many misunderstandings to be worked through. That's not what Psalm 2 is about. It seeks to provide access to the largeness of the kingdom of God. And if we don't have this, then I think our prayers do become stunted because we're thinking only about ourselves and the circumstances seem too powerful. Well, Psalm 1 and 2 prepare us to answer God in prayer. Of the 150 Psalms, these two are the non-prayer Psalms, if you wish, so that we can read the other 148 and pray with the psalmist. Psalm 1 is quiet. It gathers our distracted lives into the act of meditation. We are to meditate on God's law. Psalm 2 is not quiet. It is vigorous. It counters the bullying world, the kings, the rulers, the nations, who try to intimidate us into hiding. By means of Psalm 1, we put down roots into the soil and streams of Scripture. In Psalm 2, we observe Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, God the Son personally involved in our world at this moment. Often he is incognito. We don't always understand what he is doing. But he is here right now and he does rule. Psalm 1 calls us to pay attention. To concentrate. To concentrate our energies into listening and to attention. 
But Psalm 2 calls us to expand our vision of the Lord Jesus, the messianic revelation, the anointed one, and to worship him. And in listening attention and in adoration of the Messiah, we're now ready to pray. Now we're ready to pray. The Lord willing, we will continue to look at this in the, in the weeks to come. And may God speak to our hearts. Let's pray together. Our Father, we seem to vacillate between finding it tedious to pray or, or really praying desperately when we are in times of trouble. But it seems in both circumstances, we see ourselves as sort of the beginning and the ending of prayers, that we ask and you give and we get what we want. We become the center of our universe. And with us as as the center, we are easily intimidated. We are easily distracted. if by your grace we could see that you are, in fact, the Lord God Almighty. You are the center of all things. You began the conversation, and we are to respond in prayer. I think it would be less tedious, and it wouldn't be something that we did only in times of difficulty. But by your grace, we would enter into daily conversation with you, We would look at what you have done in our lives. We would look at trees and have a deeper appreciation. If we paid attention, if we listened, then by your grace we would be able to respond in prayer and in adoration, the wonder of all that you have done for us. I thank you that you don't accept us based on the quality of our prayers. We don't get your attention if we pray really, really nicely. And we're not going to get to heaven because of our prayers. It is because of your grace and your grace alone. But as your children, we want to grow up. We want to mature. By your grace, may that be the case. As we go through this series, as we look at the Psalms, as we see them as guides to how we should pray. May your spirit teach us, speak to us, and may we listen. I thank you that you've called us together today, the first day of a new week. I ask that you would guide us in the coming days. Pray for Stacy and her baby, for the G's, for their health in general, that you would, you would touch them and restore their health, and for Laura as well. Thank you for bringing us together today. And thank you for your great faithfulness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.